Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the City of Art Ratings Radar Show. Uh, welcome back. We uh, a bit of a bit of a gap since we last met. Uh, Nisha went away. Did you go anywhere nice, Nisha? I stayed local, but I uh, did have a lot of lunches and dinners, and uh, just forgot how costly it is. So <laughs> um, even a glass of wine is just um, yeah. We'd rather just have a bottle of wine from Waitrose and just go out in the park instead. In fact, Angus. Uh, Prompted by me, you got a meal at home this week, didn't you, from one of London's top restaurants? I did, and it was uh, it was a really interesting experience. Uh, uh, it's a good way of doing it. Uh, obviously, I'm outside London, so I can get London restaurant food delivered to me out here in the country. It seems to me to be the way forward uh, for me and for the restaurants. I guess it gives them a whole. Was new... it still hot? <laughs> no, it's... so it's delivered chilled, Frank. I had to heat it up myself. But it is delivered in uh, in separate courses, and and it is it is restaurant standard food, which uh, I I can sometimes manage myself at home. I can sometimes aspire to restaurant standard, but not always. But it's it's just a it's just a really interesting innovation. I think I know you should you've been into this in some depth, haven't you? I, I can see these kinds of services uh, continuing yeah. long term, so long as the restaurants are prepared to supply them. No, and I think you know. I reckon it's about half the price. I mean, notwithstanding going into London, parking, uh, or getting an Uber home, it's about half the price. You don't have to pay for the service charge. You can supply your own wine. Hmm. Well, for me, uh, it's the access. It gives me something that I would, exactly as you say, I'm an hour and a half outside of London. Uh, To go to a fashionable London restaurant, that is a big excursion for me. But if it turns up to my door. And uh, incidentally, uh, I've got another one coming tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, good. We'll talk about so that I'm, later. I'm there, there is there is method behind this madness because Nisha will be talking a bit later about natural resources, and I'm, I'm sure we can fit in food commodities in there somehow. But um, it might be stretching a bit. But Nisha will have a go, I'm sure. Uh, Frank is going to kick off, and uh, he's going to talk about global equity income, which basically didn't exist last year, as I understand it, Frank. Because pretty well everyone who paid dividends cancelled them or cut them back severely, but now. Now things are looking brighter and dividends are back. Yeah, the, the, the concept of equity income pretty much disappeared with, with so many dividend payers no longer paying dividends. So it was definitely a, a difficult time. As a reminder, I'm still very much on the value tip. Uh, last time it was European value moving on to global equity income. We spoke about the fact that income from equities dried up in the pandemic. And, uh, you know, particularly with companies that took state aid, no longer really seen as you know acceptable to pass that straight back onto shareholders. So value and income have become very much synonymous with one another. The good news is that a lot of these companies, you know, aren't suddenly bad enterprises. And and while they have significantly re-rated from the market lows, they're still cheap when you consider that you know income stocks have been well out of fashion for a lot longer than the pandemic. But companies that you know can afford to pay dividends and are always, but typically those with steady cash flows. Uh, Another way of looking at it would be boring companies. But as I tell my wife time and time again, boring is okay. Particularly when inflation uh, is around the corner. You want dependable businesses. That's if inflation doesn't get well out of hand, of course. But if that happens, then nowhere's really going to be safe. So let's not think about that today. Let's stay positive. So that's definitely the allure of income vesting today. First up, is an individual uh, that has been that has to be in the running for the best fund manager name, and it is Storm Uru. Uh, 
Uh, it's a fantastic name. Sounds a little bit like a porn name. Uh, anyway, Storm is AA rated and runs the Lion Trust Global Dividend Fund and has done so to great effect. Uh, he tops the sector over three years, returning 69% in dollar terms during a pretty lean period for these type of companies. Naturally, the bulk of those gains have come during the past year, up 42% over 12 months to the end of May. That doesn't put him towards the very top of the peer group over 12 months, uh, actually just outside the top quartile, but he's very steadily gone about his business, picked up his first rating in August last year, and since November, those ratings have been climbing, which, which certainly tells you that he's been positioned the right side of the, of the vaccine rally from that point. It's not the largest portfolio, it's only 100 million, uh, but it's currently offering a 2% yield, which is fairly attractive. Broadly speaking, uh, the portfolio is overweight financials, but for a portfolio that's done this well, it's not crammed full of banks. It's just got JP Morgan Chase and India's HDFC Bank. Instead, it's got both Visa and Amex, so tapping into the electronics payments boom that's going on. Saw some great stats this week that suggested contactless payments were up 30% in lockdown. I'm amazed anyone still uses cash, uh, certainly in Europe, not, not the US, where contactless is still nascent idea um, and they still have the, checks over there they do it's so backward it's mental isn't it um sorry for our u.s listeners i'm sure you'd agree mental you get charged for every transaction so uh largest position is constellation software that's an interesting pick it's a canadian company that buys small software companies holds them for a long time makes them better sort of think private equity for for computer software uh, I'd never heard of them, probably should, given that it employs 16,000 employees worldwide. Uh, it's an interesting portfolio and in it doesn't appear to be just investing in dividend paying companies. For instance, it's got Alphabet, which uh, as, far, as far as I know, never paid a dividend exactly. And it's also picked up Alphabet at the start of the year. Again, a company that you doesn't You said Alphabet pay. twice. Sorry, sorry. Alibaba. Alibaba. So confusing. Another A. Yeah. Um, it has been... Um, Active, like a lot of funds in this space, you know, opportunities that, that came across their doorstep, great companies on the cheap. Um, but when you're an income fund and you're buying a stock that suspended its dividend for an indefinite amount of time, that's certainly a risk. Take, for example, a company like Boeing. Stock picked up by the fund in February last year, this year rather. It's not yet said it's going to resume those dividends. So, you know, who knows when it's going to have the cash flow to do so. So it's certainly an interesting time for these kinds of companies. Um, moving on to the next name, as with last time, it's a manager who isn't rated. Remember I said that in these heavily out of favor areas, you might want to consider including individuals in your research who have not maybe had the best time over the medium to long term. Uh, the individual is pretty well known. It is Artemis's Jakob de Tuschlek. He's on a great run at the moment and is ranked in the 96th percentile in the category worldwide over the past 12 months for his returns of 56%. Accessible everywhere across Europe. He runs the Artemis Global Equity Income Fund. It's another portfolio that's gone through dramatic change in terms of turnover during the pandemic. You know, Nowhere is this more evident than in the top 10. So of the top 10 largest positions, eight of them were initiated since the pandemic began. So very recently picked up U.S. oil major Exxon. That's now the biggest chunk of the fund. And um, made a great decision to invest in Samsung in May of last year, which surprisingly is a dividend payer. Uh, invests over half the fund in financials, industrials and materials. 
those are the three best performing stock market sectors since markets bottomed in March last year. So no real surprise to see Jakob back at the top. But he's certainly a manager that's been rated a lot in the past and uh, he's back in form. Excellent. Thank you, Frank. Angus, are your selectors heading heading for the uh, income sector? Well, it's interesting. Income, the idea of income investing is something that used to be largely, um, you know, focused in the UK market. It's not something that actually has a long history in other European countries. I can remember not that many years ago doing a survey of our European uh, audience, our ex-UK European audience, asking them about income funds, and they all took that to mean fixed income. So uh, I guess the the interesting thing to watch will be how allocations develop, because you've had a time when people have been, asset managers have been promoting income funds to uh, pan-European investors who haven't traditionally invested in these types of funds then you've gone into a period recently where you know as frank said income sort of disappeared as dividends completely dried up so so what happens going forward uh, is the logic for people allocating to that sector still there or or does that does that prompt some kind of re-rating i i guess we just have to wait and see nisha uh Frank mentioned a few, a few, uh, a few of your companies there. I guess in the natural resources sector. Uh, I mean, you know, ESG is everything these days. It's a pretty mucky sector for a lot of the companies, isn't it? Absolutely, and that is one of the points I'm going to make in this podcast, actually, with this sector. But I just wanted to first um, say, as you know, she said, it's a fascinating sector at the moment with the ESG credential, well, or not, in the sector, but also um, the natural resources, as in metals, um, precious metals, coal, lumber as well, which has actually crashed 44% since the top, which was just around May. And also another economic indicator, copper, um, heading the same way. And these are usually a solid indicator of macroeconomic um, credentials and industrial demand. But these are all signs of a market correction. And my colleague Andreas Dagasan, head of our DAC um, office, um, does a Dagasan angle, which where you can see some of these charts. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. So any listeners out there do have a look at that. But I digress. Um, natural resources. Now, people need these resources in daily lives, e.g. metals for smartphones, um, electric vehicles, infrastructure repair as well. Um, We've seen recently in the US, uh, President Biden has pumped in a lot of money into US infrastructure and all of this needs, you know, natural resources, materials, and some precious metals like gold have been a store of values going back, gosh, uh, donkeys of years. So, but as you alluded to at the start of this, Richard, there are hidden dangers of investing in some natural resources. Now, it sounds a bit harsh, but I concentrated on ESG related investments and mining and extraction techniques for some of these natural resources. It's not ESG friendly. So mining is carbon intensive and with decarbonization going on, um, for example, how long can coal mining last? But also water and, you know, the uses of water in mining has been in the forefront where they use fresh water rather than recycled water and they're polluting water basins, which can damage biodiversity. And then you have the issues surrounding health and safety. So fatalities, injuries, treatment of workers, low pay. I mean, I could go on in that sector, but 
if you're investing in ESG factors with ESG factors in mind, now this sector is really it's a difficult one. And unless those natural resources can be replenished by the companies or dealt with through the whole extraction and supply chain appropriately, you're still going to see controversies here. But having said all that, you know, the returns made by some of the managers in the sector, they're really hard to ignore. And the first one I want to mention is AAA rated Daniel Sachs um, of 91, and he manages the 91 Commodity Fund. Now, he has an unbroken ratings track record since May 2015, and he's returned 147% in the past three years. Um, the average manager done 19%. So you can see he's very good at what he does. And as expected, he invests in listed companies involved in mining, um, minerals, energy, and other commodities. But as I was saying before, some of the holdings in the fund can be seen as an ESG investor's worst nightmare. For example, he holds Glencore, um, now, which Glencore has been investigated in the past and even more recently for environmental degradation, money laundering and corruption, and also is facing human rights issues. So, and they also dominate in cobalt supply, which is used in batteries and electric vehicles, but they control the supplies through massive operations in Congo. So you can see there might be some kind of governance issue and halting some supply somewhere. Um, and another one I want to mention. Now, this stock is held by the majority of natural resource managers, and that's Anglo-American. And it's also been involved in a number of controversies that are they are really significant to the financial material materiality of the company. So a recent inquiry, and this is very recent, into the blast um, at the company's Grosvenor mine last year found that methane gases at the plant exceeded regulated levels that led up to that explosion. And the miner repeatedly produced excess levels of methane gas, actually more than he, they could actually remove, which exposed workers to excessive risk. So that resulted in five miners being seriously injured. So you have all the factors E, S and G affected here. Now, the report was released, what, 14th of June, and the share price dropped 2.3% on that day. And since then, it's dropped 6%. So you can see how controversies, you know, can damage share prices as we see it. Cool. But, Nisha, do you, think, yeah. do, you, do you think, I mean, just your opinion on this, really, I'll be interested to hear. Yeah. Do you think it's possible for these types of firms, mining firms, to ever be ESG friendly? Or do we just have to say, if people are going to do mining, it's going to be dirty? Not all is dirty. I think if they can get a lot of the production process, right? So what I mentioned before about the water for not using, you know, fresh water, which is needed for human life, you know, animal life, biodiversity, etc. But using recycled water. So somebody's, you know, who has, you know, used it for washing their hands or something, you know, using that water rather than the fresh water, which people need to sustain life. So in those processes, they can start integrating. And then we all see all this energy transition going on at the moment. You know, that is one of their key tasks to do is how do they move away from these, you know, intensive carbon emitting processes uh, and using renewables, for example, for those processes. But I think what mining really, um, the issue that they have is more on the social side, I think, and governance. So they are operating in countries where, you know, people might think, you know, the you know, governments are controversial sometimes and may accept, you know, briberies and all that kind of um, back payments or things like that. So you have to be careful when you're looking at the governance of these companies as well. Right. I mean, I mean, Nisa, you mentioned 91 there and they, yeah. you know, every 
Asset Management House now says we are on top of ESG. 91 in their marketing and the way they present themselves seems to be one of the most prominent. So, uh, and, you know, I've spoken to them and, and they're very big on this and I've got no reason to doubt it. But, I mean, what yeah. do you do here? Do you just not yeah. you know, invest no, in that... mining stocks? or? Yeah, I think that's where it becomes a bit difficult because I think you still want to invest in these. As I said, they do, you know, give you really good returns. At the end of the day, you want capital returns. So they do produce that. And I think some of these companies, what they do is they look at engagement. They look at the companies, how they're engaging with, you know, the companies and investors. And for example, Glencore has tried to rectify this problem and has, you know, plowed in 46 million well, just last year, actually, into their safety initiatives, you know, to combat the health and safety aspects of it. I mean, some might say it's a bit too late, but there is some, there's an engagement factor. Something is happening. So, you know, as long as you can see results after this, I mean, we need to still see where the money is going and how that's affected, for example, injury rates, fatality rates, and all that. So you need some KPIs behind that figure. But I'm sure, you know, managers are on top of this. And as long as they can see a change happening, um, you know, then it's still investable. So right. but it it depends on if you want to go full on ESG or you want some ESG integration in your investment. Yeah, so it, right. it's it's a fine balance to get, I think. Yeah. Um, in that. And I the, just want. To, yeah, sorry, sorry, go on. You got one more. Yeah, I've just got one it. more. Um, yeah, so I don't. I didn't want to um, put pass this one aside. So a duo AA rated Udo Sutterly and Colin Moore, who manage the Scenario Sustainable Natural Resources Fund. Now, in their fund, the name Sustainable may not be as sustainable, but it's more sustainable than some of the companies that they invest in around the world. So um, they concentrate, it, this fund is available to buy around Europe and he and they apply a yin principle. So it's looking at yin and yang and the yin being earth and water investments. So they do look at forestry, energy, food, alternative energy. So this is a bit of a different side to, you know, natural resources investing, but they still hold mining companies like Ivanhoe, um, Lager Resources and Anglo-American, as most of these do. But I think the key issue that we need to remember about the natural resources sector is, you know, we need all these materials anyway, yeah. and somehow it has to be extracted somehow, exactly. but know what you're buying. Um, but controversies, you know, as we've seen with Glencore, it can really affect valuations of the company um, if you don't take these ESG factors into account. Yeah. So. yeah, I mean, I think the view that some asset managers seem to have is that, yeah, we, you know, we can divest from all this stuff, but then it's going to end up at rock bottom prices in the hand of private equity, who have no one to answer to, and you know, they'll just, they'll just yeah, throw all this stuff off. And that's a good point you make, Richard, actually, because aren't you better engaging with the companies to, you know, get that change rather than divesting and letting some any Tom, Dick, and Harry, you know, just invest in it and let it continue its operations as it is so you know it's engagement is probably the way to go let's see well, uh, this story will run and run i predict uh but i think this this show has come to an end for today uh, so thank you very much frank nisa angus uh, and to alan uh we're going to be back uh in three weeks actually not two weeks as frank is going off on holiday uh it's that time of year have a good time frank wherever you go uh, Thank you. And uh, that'll take us into July. So it'll be a sort of, we'll look back at the first half of the year because uh, it's been pretty eventful to say the least and, and look forward to the second half. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. And uh, thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon.